to this bit of prose. It stood with assurance, head held high, a strong stalk. But that was before the careless bump, the harsh rain. Now it's bruised and bent, weakened. It seeks gentle fingers to straighten and not break. It needs a firm touch to heal and not to hurt. Tender power, soft strength. Is there such a hand? Well, there is. It's the hand that is described by the prophet Isaiah and referred to by Matthew when they each wrote, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It's the same hand that touched a man I've come to deeply respect and admire and who has been used of God immensely, not only in my life, but in many people's lives over the years through his retreats, books, speaking engagements, and his personal ministry to the countless people who felt that society and Christendom had turned their backs and thrown them away. Brennan Manning, author, preacher, ragamuffin sinner by his own account, redeemed by the incomparable grace of God, some of you know passed away this spring, April 12th, but just listen to an experience that he shared with many of us at a conference many years ago as he gave a talk on the compassion of Jesus. He says, it was April Fool's Day, 1975. I wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning in a doorway on Commercial Boulevard in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. If you've been there, very busy thoroughfare. I woke up in an alcoholic fog, sniffing vomit all over my sweater. Staring down at my bare feet, I didn't know a wino had stolen my shoes during the night to buy a bottle of Thunderbird. Coming along the sidewalk is a woman, maybe 25 years old, blonde hair, attractive lady. She's got her four-year-old in tow. The boy broke loose from his mother's grip, ran over to the doorway, and stared down at me. And his mother came up quickly behind him, cupped her hand over his eyes and said, don't look at that filth. <laughs> That's all that is, pure filth. And Brendan says, and just about 20 years ago, that filth was Brendan Manning. And the Jesus I've come to know the Christ I've met by the grace of God on the grounds of my own self loved me as much that morning in that state of disgrace as he does tonight in the state of grace. For his compassion is never, never, ever based on our performance. It knows no shadow of alteration or change. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, the bruised reed he will not crush and the smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he's led the truth of your personal life to victory. Is there anything more fragile than a bruised reed? Is there anything more graphic, any more graphic picture of a disillusionment and passion in life lost than a smoldering wick. 
You see, the, the world is all too full of both. People who are bruised, bent, battered, and one touch shy of being totally crushed. Maybe you're one of them. Once on fire, now on flicker. Once propelled by the heat of passion, a shining light in a darkened room, now pinched by the fingers of failure, a smoking monument to what might have been. Are you bruised reed? Smoldering wick? There is a world out there that knows exactly what to do with you, isn't there? It's turned its back and snubbed its nose. The world is famous for finishing off the job. If you're bruised, then the world will break you in half. If you seem to be smoldering, it will do its best to snuff you out. But there is someone who will take you in. If you're bruised, he will bandage you. If you're hanging by a thread, he will secure his hold on you. If there's barely a spark, his breath will rekindle the flame in you. He has a tender place for the bruised and the broken, and he will never, ever abandon a wounded heart. He is a father to the fatherless, a lover of the unlovely, a husband to the lonely, a compass to the wandering, and a companion to the friendless. He is, as someone has identified him, the son of compassion. Look well at my hand-picked servant, describes one paraphrase of Matthew 12. I love him so much, take such delight in him. I've placed my spirit on him. He'll decree justice to the nations, but he won't yell, won't raise his voice. There'll be no commotion in the streets. He won't walk over anyone's feelings, won't push you into a corner. Before you know it, his justice will triumph. The mere sound of his name will signal hope, even among far-off unbelievers. He is Jesus, and he is calling you home. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. Come as you are, but be prepared, because you will never be the same after coming to him. No one ever is. No one ever is. That's what the Pharisees couldn't understand about Jesus in, in his day. They couldn't handle a lavish grace that would receive sinners and tax gatherers and prostitutes with open arms. They could not comprehend God's unconditional love for the lost. And there are times, unfortunately, when we don't comprehend it either, do we? Turn to Luke chapter 15, if you would. Luke chapter 15. Let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Let's just stop right there. In the midst of grumbling religious conservatives, here's Jesus. He strings together these three parables, and Luke actually identifies them as one singular parable, not three, but one. In verse 3, he told them this parable. 
And then he goes in to point out three poignant vignettes strategically arranged to open these Pharisees' eyes and unlock their hearts. I call this section of Luke's gospel the lost and found department. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Maybe two. But also a seeking shepherd, a searching woman, and an a lovesick father. And in each story, there's a celebration. The reason? When something important is lost, a search ensues. And when something lost is finally found, the result is celebration. At least it should be. Mark that. At least it should be. If it is true of animals and coins, how much more should it be true of people whom God loves? And he loves all people, not just Pharisees, by the way, not just Christians, by the way, not just Republicans, by the way. <laughs> I have to throw that in. Not just churchgoers. He loves all. And unless we believe and live that, we are the ones who are lost. In the third section and most climactic story, Jesus shakes us to the core of our faith and calls us to decide whether or not we are the ones who really need to be found. God's love for the lost is man's call to come home. And by the end of this message, some of you may discover that the call is really for you. We may discover it is really for us, the church as a whole. As Tim Keller points out quite masterfully in his book, The Prodigal God, the original listeners were not melted into tears by this story, but rather they were thunderstruck, offended, and infuriated. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. What I encounter within this parable is that our nature to become prodigal is multifaceted, multifaceted. Every action, every attitude in this story becomes our story at one point or another. We can slip ourselves into the skin of almost every character and discover our need. In fact, I want to ask you right at the outset as we begin this series, which character do you or will you identify with? I want so desperately to embody all the good qualities of the Father. Don't you? Yet I find myself painfully lacking. I recognize my stint as the younger brother before Christ awakened my soul. And now I grimace and tremble to realize that I am infinitely more like the older brother than I care to admit. Yet I find that to be able to see ourselves in the role of each character in the story is to experience the uncomfortable yet necessary hand of God attempting to mold us and mature us into the image of Christ. Since before I went on vacation, I felt the unshakable leading to preach this parable again. But in a way that maybe the majority of you have never actually addressed it before, you may think it's a strange idea, a strange idea, but for the next few weeks, I'm going to preach this same parable repeatedly, every week. 
Same text, same story, same characters every week. That doesn't give you permission to skip. (laughs) But each sermon presented through a different set of eyes. You see, I'm convinced we need to experience this parable not only in a general sense, but as each of the characters involved. That's the plan. So today I'm taking the general approach, the one most of you are familiar with, just to get that one out of the way. This parable, as Jesus presented it, is a supreme masterpiece of storytelling. Someone has said that this parable deserves to be called the gospel within the gospel. Look at verse 11 with me. And he said, Jesus, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And a matter of fact. Now, why this younger son wanted to leave, we don't know. Maybe he had had it with his older brother and wanted to get out of the house. Maybe he wanted his freedom. Maybe he wanted his independence. He wanted to be on his own, but he also wanted a jump start. So he demanded, he demanded his share of the inheritance. We see that in verse 12. And he exhibits the attitude of many people in our own day. And this is the attitude. I want it all, and I want it now. Right? According to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 17, the younger brother's share of the estate was approximately one-third. The older brother receiving a double portion for being the, the firstborn. Normally, the inheritance was received upon the death of the father. But it was perfectly legal, and many of you may not know this, but it was perfectly legal for the son to acquire it while his father was still alive. That was legal. Once it was given, however, there could be no further claim to any more inheritance. But the son still had a responsibility to the family, even though he had the inheritance given to him early. Although he was legally entitled to this share, the act of requesting it while his father was still living was actually a slap in the face to the father. He was literally saying to his dad, you know what? I can't wait for you to die so I can get my stuff. I wish you were dead. I don't want to be restricted by your rules anymore. I want, to, I want your wealth And I want to use it the way I choose to use it. And I want to be on my own. His desire to be free and to selfishly spend all that his father had labored for, yet without the benefit of his father's fellowship or wise counsel, just imagine what that must have done to the father. Must have grieved him immensely. And any of you that have had prodigal children know exactly what this feels like. And here we see a glimpse of God's unconditional love for his children. The father granted the request without so much as a lecture. At least Jesus doesn't give us one. What immense and undeserved favor, wouldn't you say? A grand gesture of grace. 
No argument, no pleading, no ultimatums, no questions. That's just how God treats us, isn't it? He showers us with privileges and with blessings and we slap him in the face and we spurn his love, but he lets us go our own way, doesn't he? Grieved in his heart to be sure, but he never forces us to stay against our will. Author Ken Geyer writes, Just as God did not fence off the forbidden tree from Adam and Eve, so this father does not restrain his son from the lush temptations hanging on the boughs of a distant country. He lets him go, hoping all the while that the road which leads away from home will be the very road which will someday bring him back. A few days later, the son packs up and leaves, door probably slamming shut behind him. Thanks for nothing. And at this point, we can just imagine now, imagine the room Jesus is sitting in, telling the story, the parable. And the Pharisees are all gathered around and they're leaning forward, listening to Jesus' every word. And at this point, when the son leaves and the door slams, you could just picture the Pharisees leaning back smugly, shaking their self-righteous heads. In disgust. Jesus, however, continues to artistically paint the picture. Look at verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Out of sight, out of mind. The brother thinks in another land far from home, he recklessly scatters his wealth and himself in every direction imaginable. Parties, booze, a new circle of friends, women, as many as he wants. I mean, after all, it's no holds barred excitement when you're living in the fast lane, right? But it wasn't long before the money ran out. And with it, his friends because nobody loves you when you're down and out. Eric Clapton had it right. It's right along in line with Proverbs 19, 6, and 7. You can read it. Nobody loves you when you're down and out. They want to be around you when you're feeding them and being generous to them and, and buying all the drinks, but when the money runs out, where do they all go? Where are your friends? They move on to the next generous guy. Coincidentally and very interestingly, just about the time he went belly up financially and was beaten down emotionally, a famine just coincidentally occurred in that land. I mean, full-out recession, right? And Jesus powerfully adds with such clarity and brevity that he began to be in need. This, this version here says he began to be impoverished. Too bad he hadn't heeded the wise words of a man who had been there and done that. In centuries past, Solomon wrote in almost prophetic prose, quote, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. 
But not yet ready to turn to God for help, this young Jewish man turned to the world instead. Look at verse 15 again, 15 and 16. It says, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He attached himself to somebody in that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with those pods that the swine were eating. But nobody was giving him anything. It's unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable to me what people will stoop to in order to maintain their independence. I can't imagine sometimes why a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife would leave a blessed relationship, a blessed home that God has his hand on to go into the world and live in the pigsty and choose to stay there rather than to be at home. Does that cause anybody else a little consternation besides me? But you have to be in that mindset set of independence and freedom to know how badly you want that. To a Jew, this was the most degrading and abominable occupation imaginable, slopping pigs. In fact, there was a common saying among the Jews, may a curse come upon the man who cares for swine. Today, it may be a host of other things, and it is a host of other things. The pigsty of the world is worse than most of us in this room might imagine. Young boys continue to sell themselves on city streets as well as in small towns all across this nation. They're panicked, confused, increasingly, even grade school age kids traffic in unimaginable circles of addiction, abuse, self-degradation, and animalistic behavior. So much so that they feel that there's absolutely no place left for them to turn. And adults are part of this scene as well. The tantalizing lure of so-called freedom doesn't quite pan out the way we think it does, does it? The happiness that we're convinced waits on the other side of town usually sours into another side of life, a life sometimes worse than death. It is, as one man calls it, life in the raw. And when you get to that point, you find that nobody around you cares. Look at Jesus' all too realistic commentary in verse 16. No one was giving anything to him. No one cares. But that thought jogs his memory a little bit. And he thinks, there was someone in my life who cared once. My dad cared. Notice the pattern of God's love working to bring a son home. Notice the Jesus, how he masterfully weaves it into the story. It all begins when we have exhausted all of our resources and we turn to the world to satisfy our need and our hunger and our wants, and we still come up empty. You've heard it said that some people have to hit rock bottom, right? Here's really where God's hand can get our attention. When we begin to be in need and no one is giving us anything. Is God trying to get you to see him? 
you feel like you're in need and nobody cares? You know, God may work through physical pain. He may work through emotional depression. He may work through poverty, want. He may work through relational breakdown. Whatever it is, take notice because God wants your attention. This guy was hungry. He was depressed. He had no money. He had no friends. So he attached himself to the world in verse 15. And the, world means, the word there means to glue together. To glue together. The implication is that he forced himself on a foreigner until the guy gave him a job. This son who once had everything provided for him at home turned into a leech. Is what Jesus is really pointing out. He was humiliated, he was hungry, but it wasn't until he became homesick that his heart turned back to his father. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. Now, I love the way Jesus puts it so blatantly and in such simple terms here. But when he came to his senses, that about says it all, doesn't it? It rightly describes our state of rebellion against God as being insanity. Because that's what it is. Not in our right minds, according to Psalm 78, verses 34 and 35. You know what verses 17 to this first part of verse 20 describe? It's a biblical term. Repentance. Repentance. Not a word you hear a whole lot of today. You hear about tolerance. You don't hear about repentance. You want to know what repentance is? Repentance is a purging that must take place when you realize what a life of sin is all about in the eyes of a holy God. The old Puritan Thomas Watson said that repentance is a vomiting of your soul. That means that from the depths of your gut, you are repulsed by your sin and you want to purge it out. This younger son, it seems to me, is heaving with regret in these verses. In fact, he readily admits, I have sinned. He, he knows he's missed the mark. He knows he's been wrong. He knows he's guilty, and he's ready to say it. Augustine once said that sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustained. This, young this younger son found the reality of that truth. I have sinned. You should mark that in your Bible. I have sinned is the hallmark of a repentant heart that cries out for salvation. If you can't say, I have sinned, there's no repentance in your heart. And until you get to that point, you will never, ever, absolutely never see your need of Jesus Christ. I've known people that have come to Christ, and when they speak about their lives before Christ, and they give their testimony... I've heard him preface it with words like, well, I wasn't really that bad. Really? Really? On what scale? 
Listen, without Christ, we are that bad. We are dyed in the wool, dead in the water sinners. Repulsive to God. At odds with a holy God. Wretched people who fail to live up to God's standard. It doesn't matter to what degree. It's all bad. We ought to grieve over the fact that we have hurt God. Too many of us have softened the impact of what sin really is to God. It was the death sentence that, pronounced by, that was pronounced by us upon his only son. That's what sin is. We may think it's not so bad, but God thinks it stinks. Some have suggested that at first, this particular son wasn't truly repentant, just manipulating the father by convincing words. He knew all the right words to say, right? And we can't always tell the difference between true repentance and artificial repentance, can we, as humans? We can't see the heart, so we don't know. But God always can, can't he? I know one thing, without a doubt, Genuine repentance always brings evidence with it. Genuine repentance always brings evidence with it. Look at verse 18. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of you, as one of your hired men. And so he got up and he came to his father. Note the pattern. I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and he got up and came to his father. He demonstrated that his repentance was authentic, just as John the Baptist preached, therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, if you say that's an apple tree, show me some apples. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what John the Baptist was getting at. If you say you're repentant, show somebody. There needs to be some evidence of that fact. The fruit in this guy's life was that he returned home. Note, the father didn't go to him. Note, the elder brother didn't go to him. Note, nobody else went to him. He returned. Because he turned. That's what repentance actually means. It means turning. And all of what I've just said boils down to the first principle suggested by this story. That genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. Genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. Heaven rejoices when the heart repents. Did you know that? There are people in this room that have not repented. I'm just going by the law of averages. I don't claim to know your hearts. But I know that there's things that I haven't repented of before. So I know me. And you're just like me. You're human. There are people in this room that have not repented. What is holding you back? What's holding you back? Guilt? Fear? You know, these things really can't stop you from coming to God unless you allow them to. Unless you let them to. Let them. Have you ever wondered how a two-ton elephant can be restrained by a 10-pound stake in the ground at the circus? You ever wonder that? 
It's because when circus elephants are babies, the trainer shackles the elephant's leg with a chain attached to a stake. The baby elephants weigh about three or 400 pounds at best. They try to get away, but they can't. Elephants grow to be adults weighing a couple of tons apiece. They could easily rip that stake out of the ground. Whenever they wanted to. Why don't they? Why? Because first, elephants have great memories. Secondly, they're not very smart. The adult elephant remembers how he was chained to the stake as a baby elephant, couldn't get away, and at some point he decided that he could never get away. So as an adult, he doesn't even try to get away. The elephant, listen, listen, the elephant is not chained to the stake. He's chained to the idea that he can't get away. That's how a 10-pound stake can hold a two-ton elephant. Something more serious than that. That's how the enemy of our souls can keep people from coming to God. People find themselves restrained by the failures of their past like an elephant chained to a stake. Don't buy it. God's not waiting to beat you up about your past. While this son had forgotten his father while he lived it up, the father never forgot him. He was waiting. He was watching out the window. He longed for the day when his son might return. How do I know? Verses 20 and 21. He got up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What an incredible picture of a loving father. Huh? Heart sick, love sick, pacing by the window, every day watching, waiting, praying. He doesn't scold his son. He doesn't point the finger. There were no I told you so's, no reprimands. In fact, it was just the opposite. He had so much compassion on this son that he ran to him when he saw him coming. Something completely undignified for an elderly man to do in that culture, by the way. Hiking up his skirt and running down the road. But that guy, that father could care less. His son had come home. He was beside himself with joy. He embraced him with open arms. They hugged, they kissed. In fact, the word here implies that the father kissed him repeatedly and with great passion. An undeniable sign of total forgiveness. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the son tries to squeeze out this rehearsed confession, but the father doesn't even let him finish. Cutting him off before the son begs to be hired on as a servant, the father does an incredibly uncharacteristic thing. Verse 22. The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. The father gets no pleasure out of the fact that he was right. He gets no pleasure out of that. It's enough that the son is alive and has returned. In an incredible scene of mutual humility, the father, father elevates the son to his distinguished place of prestige. Instead of harsh words, he clothes him with the robe of honor. Instead of a string of rebukes, he gives him the ring of authority. 
Instead of a sentence of slavery, he gives them the sandals of sonship. In place of a terrible judgment, he orders a table of celebration. Isn't that exactly what God does for all those who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ? Isn't it exactly what he does? Ephesians chapter 2. Look at what it says. Verses 1 to 6. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is in the, now working in the sons of disobedience. That was you. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were the prodigals. We were out in the world. We were just wasting away God's blessings on us for our own selfish desires. But, verse 4 says, God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. That should be applause, right? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say something very similar. Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You know what that means? That means complete forgiveness. It means total restoration. That is the Father's heart for people. What are you waiting for? What is it that keeps you from true freedom? Freedom in Christ. In his book, Will Daylight Come? Robert Heffler pens this moving illustration. There was a little boy visiting his grandparents on their farm and he was given a slingshot to play with out in the woods. But of course, you know, as little boys go, he practiced in the woods, but he could never hit the target. So getting a little discouraged, he headed back to dinner. As he was walking back, he saw Grandma's pet duck. Just out of impulse, he let it fly. And he hit the duck square in the head and killed it. He was shocked and grieved, and in a panic, he hid the dead duck in the woodpile, only to see his sister watching. Sally had seen the whole deal, but she didn't say anything. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. <laughs> didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing, and Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help me make supper. Sally smiled and said, well, that's all right, because Johnny told me he wanted to help. And she whispered again, remember the duck. So Sally went fishing, and Johnny stayed home. After about several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's chores, he finally couldn't stand it any longer, and he came to Grandma and confessed that he killed the duck. She knelt down and gave him a hug. And she said, Johnny, 
sweetheart, I know. See, I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing transpire. (laughs) But because I love you, I forgave you. But I was just wondering how long you'd let Sally make a slave out of you. (laughs) Says one writer, I don't know what's in your past. I don't know what one sin the enemy keeps throwing up in your face. Whatever it is, I want you to know something. Jesus Christ is standing at the window and he saw the whole thing. But because he loves you, he has forgiven you. How long will you let the enemy make a slave out of you? How long? If the younger son reveals the principle that genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy, then in the father we see that genuine restoration unveils the heart of God's love. But now enter the antagonist, the older brother. It's now that the Pharisees are leaning forward with interest and Jesus drives the conviction home. With unmistakable fervency and unmatched wisdom, Jesus rips the veneer from the heart of all those who cannot understand God's extravagant love. And the, whole, the Pharisees do not miss that they are cast in the role of the older brother, but they are blind to the fact that his is the tragic figure because it is their kind of genuine resistance that unravels the gift of God's grace. Ungrateful resistance unravels the gift of God's grace. Look at verse 25, back in Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you have never given me a young goat, no, so that I could even celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your wealth and prostitute with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The older brother was incensed. So this is how you get attention, he says. You go off, you get drunk, you go broke, you get a party. That's it. So he sat outside and threw a party of his own, a pity party. And the more he thought about it, the more bitter he became and the more resentful he got. But notice the father. His love never changes. He doesn't play favorites. He equally seeks out his oldest son and does, a some, and does something that he never did with the younger. He actually pleads with the older son to come in. But the son reveals his true heart by his own words. We just read them. You've never given me anything. I've been here serving you, slaving for you all these years. And you've never so much as given me even a goat, a Twinkie.
He's self-centered. He's self-inflated. He's self-serving, claiming to have slaved for the Father all these years. He's self-righteous. I've never gone against your commands, not even one of them. He's self-seeking. You never gave me. He's self-absorbed. He becomes slanderous. He says, this son of yours, you won't even call him his brother. One writer quips, appears that both sons spent time in the pig pen. One in the pen of rebellion, the other in the pen of self-pity. The younger one has come home, the older one hasn't. He's still in the slop. He's saying the same thing all of us say. It's not fair. It's not fair. That's what the Pharisees were saying, right? We do it too. We yell, it's not fair. Why should a person who's lived an entire life in rebellion against God, who in the last moments of their lives, on their deathbed, repent, find grace and get the same inheritance we do? We've been serving him all these years. You ever hear somebody with that kind of an attitude? It is ugly. It is ugly. Why should they end up the same way we will? We have served him and slaved for him for years. Is that your view of what? Serving God is? The brother's voice sounds painfully familiar, doesn't it? Because we all have a streak of Pharisee in us. We think we deserve the party. Oh, we come to Christ. We go to church. We do VBS. I counsel people. I preach the gospel. <laughs> What's that? Ephesians says, you're saved by grace. Through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. You can't do anything to warrant salvation. We don't deserve the party, the praise, and the prominent position. Who says that? We deserve nothing. The older brother was bitter because he was focused on what he didn't have and forgot about what he did have. He had the job. He had the inheritance, twice as much. He had the attention of his father day and night, and as someone has said, the only thing he didn't have was the spotlight. He didn't want to share it. He thought he had it, but he didn't. And when resentfulness characterizes our spirituality, we unravel the truth of God's grace, and it looks ugly to the world. What does the world say? We're a bunch of bigots, and we're, and, and we're just legalists, and we shaking our heads and crossing our arms. And we try to exclude those who need it most. Tim Keller, again, brings an unmistakable truth to bear. The hearts of the two brothers were exactly the same. Make no mistake about it. They were, they were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell their father what to do. Do you realize then that what Jesus is teaching here in this parable? Neither son loved the father for the father's sake. They were both using their father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving and enjoying and serving him for his own sake. This means, mark this well, that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him by either breaking his rules or by diligently keeping them. Whether we are in a far country rebelling against home or sulking outside while the party is going on, the love of God is calling us. 
And like the father of this parable, he reaches out to both. He doesn't play favorites. God, our Father, rejoices over any sinner who comes home. Amen? In his closing words, we find one more principle. And it's this, that genuine revival is what unleashes the joy of a man's heart. Genuine revival unleashes the joy of a man's heart. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. There's joy when something lost is found, when something dead is made alive. And you should be part of that celebration, and so should I. I love the fact that this story is left open-ended. Some people probably hate that fact. I, absolutely, I love it. What did the older son do? Did he go in or did he stay out? We don't know. The invitation is always open, though. We know that. Inside each one of us lurks a prodigal son and a critical son. The relentless tenderness of our father is calling us from each of those tendencies. The desire of God's heart is to bring us home. Period. Know this, whether you are lost in a distant world of unbelief or lost in the critical world of ungratefulness, even though you may be far from the Father's table, you're not far from the Father's heart because he loves you and he's waiting and he wants all of his children to come home. Max Lucado once said many, many years ago, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. He'll leave that final one for us to take. Right? He's calling us. He's also giving us the power to take that final step through his Holy Spirit. Where do you stand?